This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. And before we get started, just a few house cleaning duties. Uh, last week on the program, I think it was last week, was it last week, Albert, we had Dan Perkins on talking about uh, uh, the, uh, the, the grim potential for uh, sort of the dual threat of Ebola and terrorism coming together. Uh, and Dan Perkins, as I say, pin, uh, painted this grim scenario where a, ter- a terrorist uh, could come to these shores, uh, a suicidal terrorist infected with the Ebola virus, and that imagine this. So he's got the Ebola virus, or she has the Ebola virus, she goes into a, or he goes into a crowded place and blows him or herself up. Of course, then the uh, the virus would be everywhere. Or they could do it a little more uh, surreptitiously just go around sort of putting the Ebola virus, you know, on doorknobs and handrails and so forth. But then Dan Perkins went one step further and suggested what if, what if they were to take a body that, it, that was uh, uh, contaminated with the Ebola virus and dump it into a reservoir supplying a municipal water system? And uh, I hadn't even thought of that. And that frightened me, quite frankly. But then I got this email, and I promised a, a Bill that sent this to me that I'd, that I'd read this on the air. Uh, Bill writes, and uh, Bill is in uh, New Jersey, I believe. I suspect you have now realized that dumping an Ebola-infected body into a city water supply system would provide no widespread threat to that city's population. Firstly, the solution to pollution is dilution. And the Ebola virus would only be present in the bodily fluids, which would be a tiny, tiny amount compared to the amount of water flowing through the system, which is both regularly monitored and constantly disinfected. Many towns and cities on this continent get their drinking water from rivers or Great Lakes, the very same rivers that, and towns and cities upstream dump the liquid output from their sewage treatment plants. It is the same water used to flush hundreds of thousands of toilets and combined with waste contaminated with all sorts of germs, viruses, and poisonous chemicals. That's true. And after large storms, a lot of that nasty waste goes directly into the rivers without any treatment. 
Hopefully, it gets diluted before it enters another city's water intake pipes downstream. This happens all the time, all across the developed world. But most people don't know whether their drinking water comes from, or where it comes from, or where it's been before. We have the same water on the planet now that the dinosaurs did. It's always getting recycled. Now, Bill says, "I'm no sanitary expert, just a former National Radio Network news anchor." And would suggest you check what I said with a true expert in municipal waste and water systems. All right, so Bill, thank you for that, and uh, I'm going to look into that. But that that makes perfect sense. So, so one of the three scenarios uh, that Dan Perkins, the uh, the author of the Brotherhood of the Red Nile trilogy, uh, put forth that uh, terrorists could come to these shores infected with Ebola, or uh, anyway, one of those scenarios, putting a body infected with Ebola into a water system that. Uh, perhaps is not – there's no need for concern in terms of that scenario. All right. I just I, – I wanted to, uh, to, to to mention that and follow up on last week's program because I think it's important uh, to do that from time to time. All right. Oh, here's something else. I just got off the phone with a local inventor, um, Niagara Falls, uh, Bruce McBurney, and he's agreed to come on the show next week. We actually met at my Follow the Truth conference uh, back in November and he gave me a copy of this booklet that I've got with me right now. It's called The Secret Super High Mileage Report. The Secret Super High Mileage Report, 100 miles to the gallon, or that's 3 liters per 100 kilometers, super fuel injection system. And uh, essentially, it's a, um, a super carburetor. It's a, a, super, a super carburetor. Uh, it's a... It's a a blueprint or a do-it-yourself guide to build one of these super carburetors that will get you about 100 miles to the gallon. And it turns out there have been you know, dozens of inventors over the years, going back to the, like the 1930s, who've come up with similar devices. It, it, it vaporizes the gasoline and it, it whacks the, the carbon molecule, creating methane and carbon monoxide, which burn far more efficiently and produce, get this, virtually no pollution. Now, Bruce says you put one of these super carburetor systems in a smart car, those little smart cars, you can get up to, get this, 350 miles per gallon. And and one of the lead inventors of this uh, super fuel injection system was a guy by the name of Tom Ogle, who uh, lived in the southwestern United States back in the 70s. And the legend says Bill Oil, Big Oil... Uh, offered him $25 million. I'm uh, guessing they wanted to just put this thing on the shelf. He refused. So what do you suppose happened to Tom Ogle? Well, you're going to have to tune in next week and find out uh, when Bru- inventor Bruce McBurney joins me to talk about his super fuel injection system and uh, why you'll likely never see it brought to market. And then you can probably figure out why. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley will also be back next week for another Paranormal News Roundup. And we're working on some other stuff. Always working here to deliver the goods. Uh, th- you know, this is always a bittersweet uh, time of the year for me. First of all, I love Christmas. Always have. Uh, favorite time of the year. But this time, at this time, 34 years ago, just a few weeks shy of Christmas, John Lennon uh, was ripped from this world. I, w- I was looking forward to, to Christmas that year because I'd asked for uh, Double Fantasy, his album. His, this was his big comeback album. And... Uh, just the idea that Lennon was coming back from, you know, f- five years of being sort of a recluse at the Dakota. Uh, and all the promise, all the promise, perhaps the Beatles will get back together. So, and that was stolen from us. Uh, and for me personally, I don't know how you feel, but this was sort of my JFK moment. I, I wasn't around when JFK was assassinated. But this uh, still, even 34 years later, it still resonates with me. It's still 
uh, there's still some sadness there. And um, some say, you know, Lenin uh, died. It was just a, a question of a ma- or a, uh, ingredients of a madman with a gun, uh, Mark David Chapman. Of course, perhaps there were some darker forces at work there. Some have speculated that Chapman was a Manchurian candidate. We've talked about that on this show, a programmed assassin. Was he programmed perhaps just to be a patsy, to be standing there and take the fall? Uh, in fact, maybe uh, the, the real gunman, some have suggested, was um, sort of strangely this new doorman shows up at the, uh, the Dakota, a guy by the name of Jose Perdarmo who, as it turns out, was an ex-Cuban secret policeman and a CIA asset. I believe he was involved in the Bay of Pigs. Uh, and, of course, we know about, the, we know about the, uh, the, uh, the FBI files on Lenin. They were trailing him. Uh, so people have started to connect the dots and speculated that perhaps Lenin wasn't uh, merely the victim of a mad gunman. He was assassinated, executed uh, by some intelligence agency. Regardless, you know, there are enough strange circumstances, serendipitous happenstance, coincidences, even foreshadowing uh, surrounding the life, career, and and tragic death of uh, the former Beatle, John Winston Ono Lennon. Uh, There's enough there to fill several volumes, and that's where we're headed uh, for the next 40 minutes or so. And who better to talk about the myth, the legend, the high strangeness surrounding John Lennon than my good pal, R. Gary Patterson, a native Tennessean with a passion for rock and roll as a published author. Uh, Gary's work portrays many fascinating events that help shape musical history from Robert Johnson through current groups making a place for themselves among rock and roll's standing legends. Gary is the author of The Walrus Was Paul and later Hellhounds on Their Trail. The revised version is titled Take a Walk on the Dark Side, uh, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends and Curses. And today... He's developing other ideas for several new television series dealing with fascinating events and the ongoing history of rock and roll. Gary also gives, gives a lectures on college campuses concerning myths and little-known legends of popular music. Our Gary Patterson, how are you, my friend? Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. Oh, it's great to be with you, Richard. How are you? Very well, very well. But, it, you know, uh, I, I was saying that uh, Lennon, for me, was sort of my JFK. How do you feel? I mean, you're, we're roughly the same age, I think. I tell you, uh, it was more of an impact on me than JFK could ever have been. Mm-hmm. And the reason I think it was with us, Richard, was that we grew up with him. I felt like we knew him through his music. And all those Beatles songs that we listened to and that we loved, and like you said, you know, uh, the finality of Lennon's death was the finality of the whole Beatles themselves. And... You know, we had this selfish wish that we wish they'd get back together again and write some more great songs so that we could uh, relive that. But, you know, they had evolved as well. But to me, after Lennon died, it took me a week to even listen to a Beatles song. Right. I mean, it was so, so painful to hear his voice. And, you know, thinking about, you know, Double Fantasy coming out, you know, here he was ready to write some great music and, and perform and... Then we go to the lone nut with a gun theory and uh, was taken from us forever. I've told this story before, uh, but just very quickly, uh, I was at – I had only – I was a latecomer. Uh, I had only recently discovered uh, the Beatles. I mean I knew about the Beatles, but I hadn't – I wasn't really sort of uh, a huge, huge fan. And I remember going to um, – on a high school trip to Toronto to Sam the Record Man, which is a legendary 
uh, record store here in Toronto that closed a while ago. But uh, and buying that um, that EMI release uh, of their sort of a compilation album, the Blue uh, Double Album, uh, the Beatles, nineteen sixty seven to seventy, which included all their hits. And uh, that's when I, you know, just began to love the Beatles. And uh, that night, when uh, Lennon was shot, and the world, m- much of the world, or in America, heard about it from Howard Cosell on Monday Night Football, I was over at my friend's house, lived around the corner, and we had the game on. It was um, Miami versus New England. And it was a Monday night game. The sound, we had, we had the sound turned down, so I didn't hear Cosell say that Lennon had been shot in the back and rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival, because we were listening to that double album, 19, Beatles, 1967 to 70. And so we missed the announcement. And I walked home in the snow, you know, dreaming about the potential for a Beatle reunion. Uh, Lennon was coming back, and I had double fantasy, was on my Christmas wish list. And then I got home, and my sister told me, and I felt like I got kicked in the gut. Well, I was pumping gas into my car, and I heard the announcement he had been shot. And I thought, oh, my God, this can't be true. And it took probably, oh, I guess, 30 more minutes before the news broke on the radio that he had died. And, I mean, I couldn't sleep that night. It just felt like I'd lost a a dear member of my family. And I don't know what other rock star could have had that happen. You know, it's just the idea of, of the music when I was little. Well, when I was in that junior high, I think, when the Beatles came out. Sure. But, you know, listening to the music, growing up with it, studying it, loving it, and have one of the great writers taken away from us, you know, it was was just like you. It was a kick in the gut. I never will forget it. And uh, like I said, it took me a while to get over it. And I think our whole generation who grew up with the Beatles and a generation who discovered them later uh, felt this great loss by the amount of crowds that came out to the Dakota. And I think it was the first time that all the radio stations went blank. Is that right? Went off the air. All right, listen, we've got got, uh, whatever gets you through the night uh, percolating up, which means it's time to go to a break. We'll let John Lennon take us in, (laughs) which I believe was his his only number one hit as a a solo artist. It was, yes. From 1974, Walls and Bridges. We'll be back. Our Gary Patterson. We'll talk about... The, uh, the synchronicity, strange coincidences surrounding the life, career, and death of John Lennon right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Number nine dream, uh, John Lennon, as uh, we mark the 35th, 34th anniversary of his death. Our Gary Patterson, a rock and roll investigator and the author of uh, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. And, uh, Gary, as we come back with number nine dream, I, I wanted to start the discussion uh, talking about some of the, I don't know, the coincidences and the, the, some of the strangeness surrounding Lennon's life and uh, career and his death with that number nine, mm. which seemed to follow Lennon around. Uh, I mean, he was born on uh, on the 9th of October. We have we have the number nine recurring in, in, in uh, many of his, of his songs, Revolution Nine, One After 909, Number Nine Dream. Um, what other, uh, where else can we find the number nine with John Lennon? Well, as you said, he was born on October the 9th. He was born in a city, Liverpool, with nine letters. Uh, you can go through even the numbers on the license plate of the policeman who was off duty that hit Lennon's mother and killed her. The numbers added up to nine. Uh, he was aware of that. He was also... If you look at November 9th, 1961, that was when Brian Epstein discovered the Beatles. 
at the cavern and club. nine years later they'll break up that's right. 1970 right. also he meets yoko ono on november 9th 1966 so the nine played a role there of course they became you know major beatlemania in the united states when they played the ed sullivan show on february 9th 1964 there you go when lennon and yoko arrived in the united states they eventually stayed at the dakota but they came into the united states in 1971 you had nine years to that that's 1980 the year he died his apartment at the dakota was number 27 of course that makes nine the dakota is located on West 72nd Street, another nine. Right. And he was shot there, and that was on 72nd Street. He was rushed to Roosevelt Hospital that had nine letters. Uh, Roosevelt Hospital is located on 9th Avenue, and he was pronounced officially dead at 1107. So you had seven plus one plus one is nine. And he was born at 6.30 p.m. Oh. So six plus three is nine. So. He was born on a 9, died on a 9. A lot of people say, well, you know, he died on December 8th. Wouldn't it have been weird if he had died on December 9th? But you got to remember, he was a British citizen. And at the moment of his death, when it, when it was announced in England, it was already five hours ahead. So it was already December 9th at that time. There you go. Another thing is that his son, Sean, was born on his birthday on October 9th. Hmm. So, you know, you can look at it. I think they were together nine years, you know, Yoko and, and John. So there's so many things you could do a book on the number nine. I know that <clears throat> I have a lot of that listed in uh, Take a Walk on the Dark Side because to be aware of a number that would affect your life forever. And, I mean, he knew that, of course, obviously, because he had, even in when he was in the very early days of the Beatles, you had the one after 909. And uh, so, obviously, he was aware of it then. Of course, he was in a group called the Quarrymen. That was nine letters also. McCartney, right. when he meets Lennon, McCartney had nine letters in his name, the only Beatle with nine letters. And that became his prolific songwriting partner throughout, you know, Beatlemania. So, you know, you can look at that and you can say, oh, that's a coincidence. Isn't that a coincidence? But, you know, sometimes the definition of a coincidence, Richard, which we know, is uh, an explanation waiting to happen. There you go. Uh, I've got a, an, another one here for you because we just we, we, we heard uh, Whatever Gets You Through the Night, which was from Lennon's 1974 album, Walls mm-hmm. and Bridges. Right. The album was his ninth non-Beatles right. album. It was issued in the ninth month of the year. And number nine dream, uh, let's see, on the Billboard Hot 100, where do you think it peaked? I think it peaked at nine. At number nine. My word. That's, I mean, and, and obviously Lennon was, oh, we, uh, you mentioned Roosevelt Hospital. Ninth, did you mention it's on Ninth Avenue? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Uh, now, I mean, was Lennon, I believe Yoko was heavily into numerology. Was, was Lennon into numerology? Oh, he was into numerology, astrology. I know that y- Yoko used to uh, control him at times for not going anywhere by telling him, John, Mercury's in retrograde, Mercury's in retrograde. <laughs> And uh, so, you know, I think that she really sort of, he had an interest, but I think she really piqued that interest. And, uh, you know, they would have a number of psychics over at their homes. They would do readings. Uh, When they moved into the Dakota, the actor who owned it had passed away. So they did a seance to contact his spirit to see if it would be all right for them to have the apartment, you know, that the spirit wouldn't bother him. I think it was Jack Ryan, something like that. I have to look it up. But when they did the seance and they spoke to the spirit, they notified his daughter 
that they had talked to her father in the afterlife, and he'd give them permission to have their his old place at the Dakota. And uh, I'm sure that his daughter enjoyed that. But anyway, I mean, they were into it. And, you know, when you take a look at the Dakota, in a Playboy interview, there's a scene where Lennon's doing his interview, and he hears gunshots. That's right. And he turns to the, turns to the writer, and he says, oh, another murder at the Rue Dakota. Well, in its entire 99-year history. <laughs> oh, 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 dear. In its 99-year history, there was only one murder at the Dakota, and that was John Lennon. And uh, there's a gate on the other side. It was called the Undertaker Gates, that if uh, someone who died at the Dakota, then their body would be taken out that way, like Boris Karloff. I remember he passed away as one of the tenants of the uh, Rue Dakota. But it's kind of interesting, you know, when you take a look even at the Dakota had its 99-year history with John Lennon being the first one murdered. Right. You know, Did that you know, line actually make it into the Playboy interview? Did what now? The line did, yes. So foreshadowing. Yeah, a little foreshadowing, you I'll know, say. that he would say that. And, uh, I mean, did he have a premonition, Richard? What do you think? Were there premonitions with uh, John Lennon that he knew that he was going to have a short life? Well, he he actually predicted it, didn't he? Someone, someone somewhere asked him, how do you think you're going to die, John? And he said, some loony's going to pop me off or something like that. Do you remember that yeah. interview? I, I can't remember where or when, but he said that. You know, some Fred, loony is going to pop me off. Yeah. Fred Seaman. Yes. In uh, his book, mentioned that Lennon was convinced that he would be shot to death. That it was a modern form of crucifixion. Wow. And that for his line, the Beatles were more popular than Jesus Christ, that he would see that. That would be some sort of, that would be the way it would go. Some loony with a gun was shooting. And what was odd is that he was shot five times. And uh, did you know that Mark David Chapman stops in Atlanta before he comes to New York to kill Lennon? He tells this policeman, who's a friend of his, that he doesn't have any bullets for his gun. He's going to New York. He needs it for protection. So the police officer gave him five bullets. They were hollow point, too, weren't they? Yes. Well, they, you know, it, 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 he meant business when he did this. But Lennon was shot five times. And if you know anything about medieval literature and you take a look at cross symbols, you, talk, you take a look at the number five. And the number five, for instance, if a knight had a five-pointed star on his shield, like Gawain in the Green Knight. Right. The five-pointed star stood for the five wounds of Christ. Oh, my. So you, you always take a look at the five bullets, and I think about the five wounds of Christ, you know, the crown of thorns, each hand that sleep together in a wound to the side. And you take a look at those five, and you're saying, you know, this is odd, you know, that, that you had the medieval concept of the Christ figure with the five wounds, and then John Lennon being shot five times and saying that, that would be the way he would go. And, uh, you know, that was documented much earlier than that. So, yeah, you have a premonition. And, and the song, Number Nine Dream, you know, isn't that kind of odd, too? Yes, there's something very ethereal and haunting about that, about that song. Every time I hear it, it gets me. Yeah, me too. I have the same, it have the same effect on me. And the line where he says, someone calls out my name. Ah, yes. And you hear John. John. And May Pang told me, that it that was her voice. That she was the one who went in to the studio with John, and she she's the one who calls his name softly. But after John died, Yoko had May's voice removed and placed her voice saying John. Is that right? 
Yeah. And of course, odd. someone calls my name, and we know Mark David Chapman called out to him, Mr. He Lennon, did, Lennon. Mr. Lennon. So he turned his head. Someone did call out his name. I mean, the whole concept of premonition. Uh, in rock and roll, for instance, Eddie Cochran had a premonition because he was convinced he was supposed to be at the Winter Dance Party. He turned down the opportunity to play with Buddy Holly on the tour because he did a television show. But he was convinced that he had cheated death and that death was stalking him. And when he went to England, uh, Sharon Sheely, his girlfriend, went with him. She went out and bought all these Buddy Holly singles, and he had sat in his room with the lights out playing them, and he would say, uh, she would say, well, you got to get rid of this, Eddie. you got to stop this. But he's gone. He said, I know. He says, but I'm, I'll be seeing him soon. Oh, wow. And he went to a fortune teller to have his fortune told. And he woke up one night in a hotel screaming, I'm going to die. There's not anything anybody can do about it. And Patsy Cline, you know, before her death at the age of 30, had had premonitions of her death, and she told it to Loretta Lynn. And, of course, Loretta Lynn had many psychic paranormal experiences you know so oh is that right i didn't know that the one to talk to excuse me i didn't know that about loretta lynn that yeah, she had. Oh, oh yeah yeah and uh that's why she and patsy i think loretta lynn had a premonition of patsy's death and when you talk about country music i guess you could talk about johnny horton you know he was big into edgar casey but he was convinced that he would be killed by a drunk he said i'm going to be killed by a drunk i'm going to stay out of bars and he was married to hank williams widow Wow. And uh, the odd thing is he went to Texas. He played the, the last club that uh, Hank Williams played before he died. And on the way home in his Cadillac, he was hit head-on by a drunk driver and killed. So he was killed by a drunk. And, you know, these were premonitions about their artists that happened, you know, earlier in their careers, that they were convinced things would happen to them. And uh, when you think about Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithful, they'd gone to a party at Brian Jones's home, and they did the I Ching, and they, th they threw the hexagrams, and it came out with a message that said, Brian Jones drowns. Is that right? And they went to his party, and Mick Jagger and <laughs> Brian got into an argument, and Jagger pushed him in a pool. And when they left, they go back to their apartment or go back to their home, and they do the I Ching again, and they ask again, and the message was, Brian Jones drowns. So it gave twice, and they thought, well, maybe what it meant, I threw him in the pool, and he got out, and he's angry, but he was in water, but it said again that Brian Jones drowned. So, you know, and how you soon after that? Premonition, so, isn't that odd? How soon after that, Gary, did Jones actually drown? Well, let's see. Uh, when he was terminated from the Rolling Stones, it was within two years, or a year, actually, and uh, that's when they did the Hyde Park concert, and... Mick Jagger stands up and he reads Adonis by Shelley. And they let these butterflies go, but they had the butterflies in these little boxes, and it was so hot, most of the butterflies were dead. They oh, didn't flutter too far. But, uh, you know, it was within a year. So that was odd. I mean, did Jimi Hendrix have a premonition of his death? I know that when he died, there's so many. We talk about this, Richard. Sure. You and I have such a good time. And <laughs> You know, you know a lot about this, but the last I thing never Hendrix get tired wrote, of hearing it. I never get tired of hearing it. Well, we have fun, man. I mean, uh, when I was in Toronto not too long ago, a few weeks ago, yes, we had a we had a wonderful time. So I want to tell your listeners what a great guy you are to hang out with. Oh, uh, like likewise, on radio. Likewise, thank you, my friend. Uh, but Hendrix had written a, mm -hmm. a poem that he's going to make into a musical piece. It was called "The Story of Life," 
And the last line of it was, the story of life is quicker than the wink of an eye. The story of love is hello and goodbye until we meet again. And that idea, until we meet again, gave Eric Burden the concept that Hendricks had planned this, that Hendricks had committed suicide. And, of course, if Hendricks had committed suicide, there'd be no huge million-dollar insurance policy for Mike Jeffrey. So Jeffrey had his manager. His manager. everyone that it was an accidental death. Jeffrey was Otherwise, his manager, right? Misadventure. Jeffrey was his manager. Jeffrey was his manager. Uh, Hendricks was leaving Jeffrey, and Jeffrey had just borrowed about a quarter of a million dollars from the mob to build Electric Ladyland Studios. And if he had lost Hendricks, he would have some... Uh, customers wanting their money sure. who dress nicely but uh, could put you in cement blocks and put you in the river. And uh, the idea, and there are many people who believe this, was that Jeffrey had Hendricks murdered. And when you take a look at people who are murdered by record companies or the conspiracy concept, I mean, my gosh, if Hendricks was murdered for a million-dollar policy, think of Delphi Records. Delphi Records had three major stars. Richie Valens, Sam Cooke, and Bobby Fuller. Mm. What happened to all three of them? All gone too soon. All gone way too soon. Richie Valens only 17, but their insurance policies were paid off. And Bob Keane, the owner of Delphi Records, was actually investigated by the FBI. Is that right? Hmm. You know, and he said, hey, I don't kill off my artist. But, you know, Jimi Hendrix once said, it's funny how people love the dead. Once you're dead, you're made for life. That's true. Well, who's made for life? The people who own, That's <laughs> true. own the listen, music. Um, listen, when we come back, here's uh, John Lennon starting over. Uh, when we come back, we'll bring it back to, uh, to John Lennon because talking about foreshadowing, there's a famous picture uh, that yeah. some say that was taken, I believe, in around 1967. And um, we're actually doing a Google Hangout tonight. So if you're uh, if you want to get onto the uh, watch the live stream, go to my Twitter feed at Richard Serrett. It's the first feed, uh, the first Twitter f- uh, feed at the the, uh, the top. Just click on that link, and you can see some of the pictures that we're going to show you here. But we're going to show you that picture, Albert. Put this one up on the slide show. It's the uh, the picture that some say predicted John's Lennon John Lennon's death. And we'll discuss that with rock and roll investigator R. Gary Patterson when The Conspiracy Show continues right after this. All right, welcome back. Watching the wheels. Uh, John Lennon from his uh, final uh, uh, album, at least released while he was still alive, and that's um, a double fantasy. Uh, R. Gary Patterson is with us, rock and roll investigator and author of uh, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. And, of course, this is the guy that unraveled the whole Paul is Dead mystery. Uh, his website, rgarypatterson.com. And uh, here's another uh, interesting little uh, coincidence. Uh, I, now, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Gary, but the in the U.K., on the same – the anniversary uh, – well, it was December the 8th or December the 9th, uh, they – the, in the UK, they released the EP version of Magical Mystery Tour. Is that is, correct? So that happened on the anniversary of uh, where Lennon died on the same day that that was released back in 1960. Was it 66? 67. 67, Magical Mystery Tour. And there's some interesting foreshadowing in that, on that album as well, or on the EP. Isn't there a, a scene that's being played out from one of Shakespeare's plays where King some. King Lear. King Lear. And someone is, someone is dying and people are rushing to help him? It's a line where it says, bury my body. And then you hear a voice go, oh, untimely death. And then the last voice goes, what? Is he dead? 
And, uh, you know, everyone who studying this about the Paul is Dead rumor, you know, they were pretty well convinced, oh my gosh, you know, they're giving Shakespearean clues. Of course, John said he just turned the radio on. And when he, when he turned the radio on, it was just playing that. So he said, oh, this is cool. We'll just go ahead and put it in there. And uh, they left it. So whether it was inadvertent, whatever, it was just really odd that, uh, you know, it basically sort of foretold that. Right, right. And the picture you're talking about. Yes, let's talk about the 1967 photo of Lenin. And he's there. And is, I'm, I'm guessing that's a fake mustache and beard. He's... Oh, yeah, well, it better be because <laughs> that's a very thick mustache. Yeah. And he's standing there, and there's a sign. And I know what you're talking about. You've probably got the slideshow up. And, I do, yeah. And if the viewers will take a look at it, in the Paul is Dead rumor, <clears throat> the uh, sign, supposedly, or very clearly, shows the time a bus is leaving, but it doesn't show the time it comes back. So the idea was that was the time that Paul had left, and he never came back. And But if you look closer to the bottom, it says the best way to go is by M and D coach, or CO. Right. It looks like company. So there were a number of rumors about that, that M and D company was a funeral home that handled all the arrangements of the strange death of Paul McCartney. And then there was a rumor that it was M&D coach, and that was the bus line. And, of course, a lot of people may not know what a magical mystery tour is or what a mystery tour was. In England, you'd get on a bus, and you had no idea where you were going, and they would take you somewhere that was a mystery. That's just like our, our Toronto Transit Commission. But yeah. <laughs> they don't mean it to be that way, though. Yeah, it's probably a mystery tour as well, isn't it? But, you know, the whole thing was that they made fun, and, and they all this is going to be great, and it was Paul's idea, and we'll film all these wonderful things. When we get out there, there's no script. We just film what happens. Unfortunately for the Beatles, nothing happened, and the movie was a terrible flop. But going back to the odd thing about the picture is that if you look at Lennon standing next to that sign, and it says the best way to go is by M and D. C, because the, the, the O is cut off. initials yeah. of Mark David Chapman. There you go. And the thing that always got me, which you mentioned earlier, I wrote about this, I think it was in Hellhounds on Their Trail, and it's again in uh, the uh, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, but the strange thing for me was the date. Not only was he killed by this MDC, but it was released on December 8th, 1967, 13 years to the exact day. Right that John Lennon would be murdered. So another coincidence. And I think maybe the scary thing is, what if there is some way to tune into whatever number is our destiny? And what if we were so well in tune with that as Lennon was? And, I mean, he knew the number nine had all this impact on his life. He would try to schedule things. And when the Beatles released uh, the video game, you know, when it came out, Rockstar or whatever, Rock Band, right? they put it out on September 9th. September the 9th. Yeah, 9-9. I think it was 2009, too, maybe. Because... That's right. That's right. It was. It was two, uh, It was um, September the 9th, 2009. 9-9-9. Right. 2009. And I thought, wow, that has to be on purpose. Right. You know, the Beatles, 9-9-9. For sure. And you take a look at numerology, nine's the highest number. Everything repeats after that, so... Maybe the idea is by putting it out on three nines that, 
you know, it would be a great success. Well, it was. And they also released their, their back catalog on that same day, September 9th, 2009. So, here's a conspiracy force, Richard. Did uh, Paul McCartney do that on purpose because he knew about John and the number nine and it was a way to honor him? Or did they all believe that this nine that Lennon had preached about his whole life that would bring him a little bit more fame, I guess, or not fame, but maybe success? Right. Right. You know, Interesting, I, huh? It is. Uh, I want to. Uh, uh, we're coming up on a break here, and we can talk about this. We'll get the conversation going now, but uh, talk about it after. And you mentioned the Dakota, uh, of course, where, where Lenin was killed. Here it was, the 99th anniversary of the Dakota. And, of course, it was called the Dakota because back, you know, uh, in the 1800s when it was constructed, 72nd Avenue, I mean, you might as well have been, you know, at the North Pole back then. Huh. Uh, so they called it the Dakota, I guess, for that. You know, it was remote. Right. Uh, but anyway. Um, I want to talk about some of the strange things that happened that night, uh, you know, regarding Chapman and, uh, um, well, I'll just throw this out there and we'll pick it up on the other side. Mia Farrow, Mark David Chapman, Mia Farrow, the Dakota, John Lennon, as we discuss or commemorate the 34th anniversary of the death of John Lennon, our Gary Patterson rock and roll investigator and author of Take a walk on the dark side. Rock and roll myths, legends, and curses right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. And uh, we were discussing the, the synchronicities, uh, high strangeness, uh, coincidences surrounding the life, career, and death of Beatle John Lennon as we approach the uh, 34th anniversary R. Gary Patterson is with us, rock and roll investigator, the Fox Mulder of rock. And uh, incidentally, Gary, if people go to your website, rgarypatterson.com, can they order the book uh, through the website and maybe get an autographed copy, perhaps? Well, I tell you what, I'm always glad to do autographed copies. And uh, every year I'll send out a, a notice saying if they'll send me a copy of the book, send it priority mail with a self-stamped priority mail envelope inside for me to send it back. I'll be glad to do that. Excellent. All right. I mean, this is uh, between uh, the, the walrus was Paul, which again, I mean, you just you uh, you really solved the whole riddle of the Paul is dead uh, mystery, which just captivated the world back in, in 1969. Uh, but also take a dark on the uh, the dark take a walk on the dark side. Rock and roll myths, legends, and curses. I mean, for any serious music fan, you you just have to have these in your library. Uh, now, um, I wanted to talk about. Now, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not. If anyone would know, it would be, it would be you. When Mark da- David Chapman, there he is standing in front of the Dakota, waiting for John Lennon to come back from, was it the Hit Factory? Yes. And um, uh, he claimed that he saw Mia Farrow walk by, and this this was somehow a signal uh, to, uh, to, to, uh, to Mark David Chapman, you know, that he had to kill Lennon. So... What is the connection? Tie this together for people. Um, you know, Chapman seeing Mia Farrow in front of the Dakota and, and Lennon. Tie that all together for us. Well, Mia Farrow was good friends with John Lennon. And uh, what I think when I hear that message from him, you know, double fantasy was a deal with, John, with uh, Chapman because he thought that he had a double, that he was John Lennon. He would sign John Lennon's names to documents. He... Also, uh, let's see, besides just signing his name, he also thought he was holding Caulfield. And that brings up the whole mystery of the catcher of the rye. Right. You know, J.D. Salinger. Uh, he went out to buy a copy. Uh, I think it was the day before he murdered Lennon. 
and he was waiting for him, and he was reading the catcher of the rod, and he was so intent in the reading that he missed Lennon getting out of the taxi going into the Dakota, but he saw Mia Farah. And if you remember catcher of the rod, <clears throat> Holden Caulfield was the savior of children. You know, that was the catcher of the rod. It was, a, it was an old take on the, you know, if a body see a body coming by the rod. And Holden Caulfield had mistakenly placed his catcher in the rod. So now Chapman was Holden Caulfield. He had signed, he told his wife that he wanted to change his name to Holden Caulfield. So if he was going to rid the world of a bad influence, and of course he considered Lennon to be the terrible influence that, you know, he had robbed him because of his love for the Beatles to find out that Lennon didn't believe in God. You know, like an imagine, imagine there's no heaven. And he's saying to a group of children, imagine there's no Lennon when he was at a Christian camp in Georgia. So Mia Farah relates to the Dakota, if you remember the movie Rosemary's Baby. Right. And, you know, she was this perfect, innocent victim who was brought into this strange, satanic cult to bear the Antichrist. And her innocence was totally lost and when the baby was born. And I have no idea if that was one of the things that this lost innocence that he saw with Mia Farah. But, you know, Mia Farah and her sister uh, had traveled to India and went to the Maharishi's camp with the Beatles and got into transcendental meditation. And uh, Dear Prudence was actually written for her sister, who the Maharishi was after, and she stayed in her tent, and the Beatles wrote the song for her to come out and play. Aha! Uh-huh. And uh, But the thing is about the Dakota, yes. it's got a dark history. No murders were committed there, but there were ghosts there that people reportedly saw. Right, right. And when William Castle who was, you know, the master of the, the B-Heart movies, he was turned down to be the director of the, of the uh, Rosemary's Baby, but he could be the producer. So he, Roman Polanski was chosen, and they became good friends, and Polanski asked Castle if he could help find a home in California for he and his pregnant wife to live there for a while. And uh, William Castle found the house on Celio Drive, there you go. And when Sharon Tate went to Los Angeles, her former boyfriend, Jay Sebring, she stayed at his house. And the night she stayed there, she had this dream, or she thought it was a dream. She saw this strange little man walk into her bedroom like he's looking for something. He didn't say a word. And then he leaves. Well, Jay Sebring had bought the home of Jean, <clears throat> excuse me, Jean Harlow, and her husband had committed suicide in the house 30 days after they were married. So Sharon Tate gets up, she walks down the staircase, and she sees this dark figure laying up against, uh, well, against the staircase, and she could tell that his throat had been cut. It was ghostly. So she rushes down to get herself a drink, and she tears the wallpaper. Somehow she gets back to her room, and she is convinced that she just imagined the whole thing. Well, when she gets up the next morning, she sees the torn wallpaper. So it had to happen. Right. Now, the figure she saw was herself. Because when the police came in after the Manson murders, she was lying there with her throat cut. There was a rope around her neck to a beam of the roof tied also to Jay Sebring. And, you know, it was just like she had described in this incredible premonition. So if Rosemary's baby 
that was filmed in New York, if it had some strange curse. If you look at the scene where the girl jumps out the window and commits suicide at the first, who had the strange necklace that Rosemary's going to be given. Right. Her body is found in the exact location that John Lennon will be shot. Right. Rosemary's baby was shot at the Dakota. Yes, it was. And the story goes they actually used one of the rooms that the Lennons had before they moved there. And when John Lennon found that out, according to Fred Seaman, he wrote on the wall, Helter Skelter, and he pushed a file cabinet back against it. Because Lennon was well aware of the Rosemary's Baby thing, you know. And right. Roman Polanski never said it was some dark curse, but I will tell you, William Castle received a letter saying that he had released the Antichrist and that he would pay, and that what he would do is he would slowly... Uh, decay and die and he didn't think anything of it and it was on halloween he was supposed to go out with his daughters and his wife to trick or treat and he got very ill and it turned out that he had these terrible kidney stones and he went to the hospital and he had a number of surgeries and while he was in the hospital the man next door to him was the guy who wrote the score the musical score for rosemary's baby oh, he died next to castle and, you know, so Castle had these things. It took him years to get over it. But, you know, he could see himself as a victim of this curse that, you know, the, the kidney stones, they couldn't find them. Sure. They would remove some, and the pain returned, and it was, you know, it was a terrible thing for him. So he thought, he sort of believed in the curse, and uh, Polanski never bought in the idea about the house. And, you know, it's just such an odd thing because, you know, you talk about Mark David Chapman. I mean, was he a paranoid schizophrenic? I mean, when you go into a situation like that, you have illusions of grandeur where you think you're God or you think the government's right. after you and the black helicopters are coming. Right. Or that you know something that's so valuable that, that, you know, that you have to watch for your life. And, you know, here he is, and he's hearing voices, and he sees little people in his room. And uh, Yeah, he was becoming un- undone. Whether or not he was, uh, you know, the actual trigger man, whether he was a patsy, there's no question. He was mentally ill. And... Uh, uh, but, I mean, did he actually see Mia Farrow walk by, or did he imagine that? I guess we'll, well never know. You know, he says he saw her, and yeah. he saw a couple of other actors, but, you know, he just watched them. Now, like I said, Mia Farrow and John Lennon were friends. They'd been friends ever since they'd gone to the Transcendental Meditation Session. So he may have seen her, you know. I mean, but the thing that always gets me, Mark David Chapman, he shoots John Lennon, and he sits calmly down yes. and reads the catcher in a row while the police come. Right. Just stands there. And he writes in the book, this is my what? This is my testament. This is my testimony. And it was supposed to be the secret of the catcher in a row. And, of course, if you, if people who have seen um, the Mel Gibson movie, uh, mm. which is called, is it called Conspiracy Theory? Yeah, it the, is. The, the, uh, the, the book, Catcher in the Rye, is used as a sort of a trigger mechanism in, in mind control. And I, I could be wrong about this, Gary, but I believe uh, Hinckley, uh, who uh, attempted to assassinate Reagan, was also carrying a copy of Catcher in the Rye. He was. There was someone else who was hanging out at the uh, the um, the Dakota that night with Chapman. Um, her name was Jude. Do you know that story? Uh, she was a big fan, and uh, mm-hmm. well, she waited. She she invited Chapman to wait with him. I believe. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Chapman offered to buy him dinner, but you know they they didn't. But you know she. There are a lot of people who feel guilty. 
Uh, but you think of the song "Hey Jude," right? And so here's this woman Jude that's <laughs> hanging around at the Dakota, and yeah. and and Chapman confessed later. Part of him didn't want to do it. He was there was struggling with these internal demons, and he was. He said, yeah. "Had Jude asked him, had he had he had she asked him to go to dinner with with her, then Lennon would be still alive." That's right. Amazing. You know, and when you think of the word Jude, I mean, of course, Paul McCartney was had written the song as "Hey Jules." For Julian, right, and they changed it to Jude. But you know, that's kind of interesting. The whole thing is, yeah, if she'd gone to dinner with him, because you know he was really debating it. The story goes that he actually even prayed to the devil to give him strength to take John Lennon's life. Mm-hmm. And you have that, and uh, you know that's kind of that's very spooky as well when you think about it. And you just think about that whole concept of. Uh, of killing this man at first that was a hero. And then, you know, he decided to take his life. And why? Because he wanted fame. Well, it wasn't fame. It was infamy. Well, there's and, so many other know, things, Gary. I, I, we didn't have time to get... I wanted to talk about Todd Rundgren and... and oh, uh, gosh, yeah. So much the more. The album that triggered it. Yeah, to face the music and uh, so much more we could have gotten to. I'll, I'll just leave people with this very quickly. So I talked about, you know, how many people learned about uh, Lennon dying, and that was because of Howard Cosell. But exactly six years earlier, I think to the day, it might have been December the 9th, John Lennon and Ronald Reagan met at Monday Night Football. They were two celebrity guests in the booth with the commentators, one of whom was Howard Cosell. And they were interviewed during the game. And of course, then six years later, almost to the day, it was Howard Cosell who broke the news of Lennon's death to millions of viewers. Uh, Terrible. And one other thought for you. When, John, when uh, Chapman moved into New York to kill Lennon, he stayed at the YMCA, right? Right. The address of the YMCA is 63rd Street. Ah, there you go. Six and three and is nine. It never how ends. How far is the YMCA to the Dakota? And the answer is nine blocks. Oh, dear. Gary, always a pleasure. Can't wait to uh, to close a, a bar or restaurant with you. Get up to well, Toronto. We've been known to do it. <laughs> All right, my friend. Our right, Gary Patterson. Thank you. You're very welcome, Richard. Can't wait to talk to you. OurGaryPatterson.com. RichardSerrett.com. Follow the truth. Thanks for inviting me into your home, as always. Hello and welcome uh, to all of you listening in on our flagship station right here in Toronto, AM740, Zoomer Radio. And uh, to those of you around the world listening to the the live stream webcast on ZoomerRadio.ca and, of course, the podcast... I continue to get emails from around the world, uh, and this always tickles me, uh, finding out how people are listening to the podcast. Um, uh, i never forget uh, receiving an, uh, an email from a gentleman who listened to the podcast while he was delivering uh, mail uh, in the outback on his moped. Uh, you know, just imagining, thinking of this gentleman, you know, driving around on a moped in the outback, delivering the mail, listening to the conspiracy show. Uh, and, um, but the podcasts are amazing and it just, it gets out there. It's like a spider web. Uh, it just grows and grows and grows. Anyway, for those listening on the podcast, welcome. And of course, a special hello to all of you listening in on, um, one of our affiliates in the U.S., such as KVOKAM in Anchorage, uh, KLVT in Lubbock, Texas, WCRA in, in Springfield, Illinois, just to mention a few. And uh, we've recently introduced a new way to listen and watch The Conspiracy Show, something I've only recently learned about. It's called an HOA, or Hangout On Air. And essentially, uh, you can listen and watch the show stream live on YouTube. 
And if you want to watch, all you have to do is go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, and you find the tweet. It's right at the top of my feed that says live stream HOA. Again, HOA, HOA means hangout on air. And then you just click on the link and voila, uh, you can join me in studio. And from time to time, this is in the early stages of developing uh, this, from time to time, my guests will also join us uh, on our Hangout uh, via their webcam and so forth. And we've got uh, a slideshow that, that, uh, that uh, is constantly playing as well. So you can see, we can add pictures and, and video and, and, and many different uh, elements. So uh, if you're watching the live stream on YouTube, let us know what you think and... Uh, or just say hi. Drop us an email at the conspiracy show one, the numeral one, the conspiracy show one at gmail dot com. Uh, very quickly, just a few more housekeeping uh, details here. I want to I, I want to acknowledge um, a gentleman who sent me this. It's a uh, Bill Cramp uh, from in uh, Victoria, B.C. And Bill, uh, back in October, we did a program on alien abductions, and uh, uh, Bill shortly after that heard the show and. Responded and he sent a. Um, it was about a hundred pages. Uh, it was a letter and, and all sorts of background and details and excerpts from uh, Dr. John Mack uh, of Harvard University fame and uh, Dr. Jacques Vallée of Stanford University, of course, and uh, uh, Mack's book *Human Encounters with Aliens* and so forth. And I didn't get a chance to respond uh, to Bill um, because I um, he just he he sent it using the old uh, snail mail. And uh, I didn't uh, have an email address for Bill. Anyway, I just want to acknowledge Bill. I did get that. Thank you to Bill, uh, Bill, Clam- uh, Bill Cramp in Victoria. Uh, I, I did receive the letter, Bill, and I appreciate it. And there was a lot of interesting material there to wade through. It's, in fact, it's still sitting on my, uh, on my desk in my office. I haven't looked at all of it. But uh, I did get the letter. I do appreciate all of your mail. Thank you. Um, also, I want to mention something that's uh, in the early stages, but if you missed my Follow the Truth conference back in November in Oshawa at the Regent Theatre, we had a tremendous turnout, uh, considering it was a snowy, stormy Sunday. We're in the early stages of putting together another Follow the Truth conference. Sometime in the spring is what we're aiming for. I just want to plant the seed early. There will be another Follow the Truth conference. More details will be forthcoming. We have had such an amazing response from that. We're getting emails from uh, uh, promoters and people in, in Texas, inquiries from Australia. I mentioned the outbreak earlier. Even Croatia, of all places. They want us to take Follow the Truth on the road. So we're working on it. Uh, and I mentioned uh, November. We had that snow uh, snowstorm. I think it was the first of the year. It was around that time. Um, we the, the first snowfall, and uh, the twins and I went outside. That's just uh, something that uh, kids are attracted to. The first snowfall, they got to get outside. They got to be out there, you know, experience it. They want to be in the midst of it. So we were examining the snowflakes, and and if you're a parent, you can relate. You know, the wonderment of children when they when they look at a snowflake, uh, an individual snowflake, and of course they noticed uh, the the amazing. Architecture, I guess I would I would describe it the, the amazing architecture of each individual snowflake, and they both said, "I'll never forget this." They said it almost simultaneously. These look like they were built, and uh, yes, behold the wonderfully patterned beauty of creation. Uh, and it's true, there are many things in nature, not only uh, snowflakes, but pine cones and flower petals and uh, all sorts of crystals. Um, uh, you know, even even out in space, the stars that we spin around, the galaxies that we spiral within, the air we breathe, all life forms as we know them 
seem to emerge out of these timeless geometric designs. They're architects, or archetypes, rather. And uh, these archetypes have been incorporated or encoded into many, uh, many prehistoric monuments, Stonehenge, for example, the pyramids uh, at Giza. Uh, even many of the, the world's great cathedrals and mosques and temples are based on these same principles of sacred geometry. So getting back to the snowflake, North and Zach were saying, you should do a show about snowflakes and, and who built them, which I thought was adorable. But I thought, well, m- maybe I could do a show about sacred geometry. So I put Albert, my story producer, on the case. And what follows uh, for the next 44 minutes, give or take, is the fruit of his efforts. Because Albert went out and he found precisely the right person to talk about sacred geometry. Scott Onstott is the creator of the epic documentary film called Secrets in Plain Sight, a densely packed series about esoteric patterns found in art, art, architecture, urban design, and the cosmos. Volume 1 alone runs 3 hours and 43 minutes, and actually it's, it's free to watch online. As well as being a prominent architect and engineer, Scott connects the dots between mysterious glyphs the numbers in, in, in themselves, math and numerology, numbers in space, sacred geometry and architecture, numbers in time, musical principles, number in space and time, astronomy and astrologer, astrology, and secrets in plain sight reveals the profound ancient knowledge inherited from Egypt, which has been encoded in units of measurement, in famous works of art, in the design of major buildings, in the layout of city streets and public spaces, and in the precise placement of obelisks and other important monuments upon the earth, where the viewer is led to perceive an elegant harmonic system linking the human body with the architectural, urban, planetary, solar, and galactic scale. Scott Onstott, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm well, thank you for having me on. When we talk, I, I mentioned sacred geometry. Let's start with geometry. Where do, oh, We often ascribe geometry to the ancient Greeks, but it, it goes way back, further than that. How far back? Well, I, uh, Plato said geometry came before the creation. And if you really take sacred geometry seriously, you start to wonder if, if that isn't true. Uh, geometry seems to be underlying everything in the universe. You know, atoms are very geometric, if you want to be a materialist about um, everything. But, um, yeah, I just see geometry um, all over the earth in alignments between sacred sites, um, obviously, individual buildings are usually geometric, and sometimes they contain really interesting numbers and information. Um, geometry is one of the um, ways into the great mystery. Um, it's one of the, the four subjects in the in the quadrivium, which I think you kind of touched on in the introduction. Right, right. Yeah. And 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 it all starts with the sphere, doesn't it? I mean, can't you all geometric forms? Don't they come from the sphere? The sphere. Well, you could construct everything from a sphere um, if you start as a single point of awareness and imagine that you are in a void and you go a certain distance, whatever that distance is, you can decide um, and stop. And then uh, you have now two points in your universe. Um, if you go back to the center um, and keep surveying points, you, you end up describing a sphere because a sphere is all points equidistant from a center. And so from that sphere, you can then go back to the surface of the sphere and do it again. 
and you end up creating two intersecting spheres, and in two dimensions, that would be called the vesica Pisces, or vesica Piscis, as it's sometimes pronounced. And from this shape, um, geometry seems to explode. It's, it's been referred to as the womb of creation. Um, you know, within that, you have all the important um, ratios, and musical harmony can be derived from that shape. You mentioned the ratio, the, uh, a term that I've heard, uh, the golden ratio, which is found uh, everywhere, apparently, found in nature, for example, even the way that the human face, the, the ratios of the human face. Uh, That's right. Is, All of our bones in our fingers and our most uh, body plans are based on the golden section. Yeah, what, it, let's delve into that a little bit. What do we mean by the golden ratio or the golden section? Well, if, if you take any line and divide it at a single point, uh, it's about 61% of the way along the line. That ends up dividing the line so that the, the smaller part is to the larger as the larger is to the whole. And this is a special kind of magic ratio that architects and artists have known about for centuries. And it has some really interesting properties mathematically, and we see it um, expressed in the body plans of lots of, of creatures. Uh, and it's in every uh, pentagon or pentagram shape all of the, the different aspects of that shape are related to to itself using the golden number or golden ratio. And the fact that these uh, ratios, that this sacred geometry that exists in nature, uh, finds its way into architecture, art, music, I mean, what is... What's the takeaway? What is the significance of that? I mean, one could say, okay, so, so man is attempting to, to mimic nature. But there's more to it than that, I'm guessing. Well, it's, it's sort of like the universal language, um, that is, geometry or math or number. Um, you don't have like a German math and a Chinese math. You have only math, and everybody learns the same thing. And so in that way, and the same thing is true of geometry. So in that way, it's like the true universal language. And it, it's sort of underneath everything. Um, it's sort of how the, how the universe is built. So it's, um, it's like a part of the matrix, if you will. I was going to use the word matrix. This, uh, right. this universe simulation. I, uh, I, I mentioned my Follow the Truth conference. Uh, I had a gentleman on the, uh, speaking on the conference named John Elvidge, uh, who's written a book called The Universe Solved. I don't know if you're familiar with, with John's work, Scott, but he talks about, I mean, this is a whole school of thought that people subscribe to, not just uh, John, but uh, the idea that we are living in a digital uh, simulation. We are living in a matrix. Maybe I can get your, your thoughts on that when we come back. But we'll uh, delve further into sacred geometry with Scott Onstott, creator of the epic documentary film Secrets in Plain Sight right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. We are talking sacred geometry with Scott Onstott. And uh, I just mentioned uh, Jim Elvidge uh, before the break, Scott, the idea we're living in a, a digital simulation. Uh, you mentioned the Matrix, and he talks about, you know, we are living in a, ma- in a Matrix or potentially living in a Matrix. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, we're living in a digital simulation. Well, I, I'm sympathetic to the general idea that we're living in a kind of matrix because in my research I, I uncover sort of an uncanny order to the universe um, and I see it at all different scales. But my conclusion is different. I, I don't think that we're living in a digital simulation. I think that the whole universe is a work of imagination and, and there's only one awareness. And um, 
you know, traditionally you'd, people would call that God, but uh, you can just call it awareness and make it kind of a um, an object. But awareness is never an object. It's the very awareness that you have right now that you are listening to me uh, talk with. And so this awareness imagines a whole universe, and it also imagines humans on a certain planet. And we are those fictional characters um, who take on lives of our own. And that, that's not to diminish the, the felt experiences that we have, because they're very poignant and very real. But um, this is just another way of looking at reality, um, that, that it's a work of imagination. So the consciousness creates matter. Yes, consciousness is fundamental. So matter um, is in consciousness, rather than the other way around. You know, right, the right. prevailing scientific viewpoint is that consciousness is almost this trivial thing that happens just on the surface of our brains. Um, you know, it emerges from this wetware that we have, and it's sort of the last thing to evolve at the last second. But what I'm proposing is very opposite view, that there's really only consciousness, and matter is an illusion. And, you know, we have some evidence of that when we look, when uh, quantum physicists look very deeply into matter. They say the atom is 99.999. In fact, there's 13 nines after the decimal point. So 99.999 dot 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 percent right. nothing. And so there's really nothing there. There's no thing. Right. Right. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's very illusory. Um, now, the, the incorporation of sacred geometry uh, that, that, um, that we perceive in, in nature and, and adapting this for use in, let's say, you know, the construction of uh, edifices like the pyramids. Uh, and I'm guessing, you know, these were the, these were the stonemasons that, 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 that did this. Why did they do it? I mean, was there some, some power um, generated by incorporating sacred geometry into the into the pyramids. Well, seeing that that's how the whole matrix or the the whole universe is imagined and how how it works, um, if you have that understanding, I think it's really tempting to encode that information in structures. And uh, you know, the, there's a great question of whether the ancient Egyptians were the ones who encoded that or if they were influenced by the gods or by aliens uh, who actually knew the information and just told them to build it this way, and they, and they did that. So I don't, I don't propose to have an answer to that uh, question. Right. But, uh, I guess it's not, maybe it's not so important who did it, but, uh, but why. I mean, we ascribe uh, you know, uh, s- uh, certain attributes to pyramids. You know, we, pure, we think of pyramid power and the healing power. Uh, of, of pyramids. Uh, uh, some, some propose that the pyramids were actually energy sources, uh, you know, giant capacitors or, or batteries. Uh, does this have anything to do with the, the sacred geometry? Um, all of those qualities come out of the pyramid, and the pyramid is kind of a special case. Um, and they, they, everything emerges from that, from geometry, um, I would say. Um, but what I'm looking at is sort of a different layer of information. I'm not looking at the practical side of how the Great Pyramid may have, may have been used as an ascension chamber or a building that makes power, um, but I'm just analyzing the cross-section of the pyramid and noting that if you inscribe an equilateral triangle inside of it, the edge length is 555.5 feet. 
which happens to equal 6,666 inches. And that just so happens to also be the height of the Washington Monument and the length of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And so I just, I'm pointing out this pattern, and I don't, I'm not saying that there's a practical use for it other than changing your your perspective or giving you a, a new perspective on some of the same old things. Right. And and uh, is there any takeaway uh, in terms of uh, you know we talk about the uh uh the mark of the beast or the mark of the, the mark of man the 666 and that that ratio that you just mentioned? Um I wouldn't I don't subscribe to the the mark of the beast theory myself, but I find that all um repetitive digits are are keys. Um and in a way I think that's some evidence that the simulation that we're in or the way that we've imagined it it is following the decimal system, in fact. And that's just not an anthropomorphic choice that we made when, because we have ten fingers. But it's actually a very deep structure. And, uh, it, you know, and I find that uh, this is uh, prevalent throughout, throughout the system. Uh, can you give me some examples, let's say some more, uh, not more modern necessarily, but when we're, I guess it's relative, we're talking about the pyramids. Let's talk about some of the great cathedrals of, of Europe, for example. Do we still see these, these ratios extant in, in uh, let's say, for example, St. Paul's Cathedral or the Vatican, etc.? Yeah, I mentioned uh, St. Paul's Cathedral having that length, which is tied with the Great Pyramid. Um, I did an analysis of Chartres Cathedral in Secrets in Plain Sight, Volume 1, and it shows how it's related to the Tree of Life and to musical octaves. Um, I've, in my work, I, I look at a lot of um, distances between sacred sites, and I find that those often encode repetitive di- digits. Um, for example, the... Um, the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela in Spain is the end goal of the um, the Way of Saint James. It's the it's also known as the Camino. It's a traditional pilgrimage right. that hundreds of thousands of people go on these days. And that um, the very center of that cathedral uh, has a a point called the Rond Point, and that is exactly 666.66 miles from the center of the round fountain in the Tuileries Gardens in Paris. Amazing. That's not, a, that's not an accident. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it. And, no. And that round fountain is sort of an origin point of a whole lot of other interesting things as well. Such as? Well, um, you can also draw a line from the round fountain to um, this peak in southern France called Bougarac Peak. It overlooks Rennes-le-Chateau. Ah. And that's a New Age pilgrimage site. Since the 1960s, people have been going there. Right. And these, each stop uh, along this pilgrimage, these supposedly correspond to the various chakras, right? I believe so. Right. And um, so the distance there is 666.66 kilometers. Mm. And this is really interesting because here we have kilometers, and the thing to Spain, to Santiago de Compostela, was in miles. And this is one of the curious things about um, these distances that I find is they happen in different systems of units. But I've found that from you know looking deeper into the units, that this seems to work because each of these systems is based on the Earth. That is, they're derived from the size of the Earth. 
in one way or another. And in that way, they have a resonance with the earth. And the word geometry itself literally means earth measure. And so in this way, it's a kind of sacred geometry that I'm revealing here with these distances. Right. Uh, I was talking earlier uh, about uh, uh, John Lennon in New York City, and, and uh, of course, one of his favorite haunts was Central Park. And there are a number of ob- uh, there's at least one uh, obelisk uh, in in Central Park, but you, I believe we, uh, we've got it up on the slideshow, don't we, Albert? It's um, uh, it's a map of Central Park, and there's a connection between one of these obelisks and is it the the Jackie Kennedy Reservoir? Yeah. What's happening there? Well, actually, uh, before I tell you that, which is a fascinating part, let me just uh, mention one fact that um, comes out that connects the obelisk in Central Park from ancient Egypt. It's called Cleopatra's Needle. Yes. And the distance from there to Bougarak Peak in southern France. Now, I don't have my notes in front of me, but I think it's 3,033.3 nautical miles or something like that. Right. The repeating numbers. It's all threes for sure. Mm. Isn't that amazing? Uh, So that's kind of amazing. But, um, oh, also, incidentally, the other pair to Cleopatra's Needle is in London, in central London, on the Victoria Embankment. And I measured the distance from there to where the obelisk used to be in Alexandria, Egypt. Right. And it's 3,333.33 kilometers. My. Exactly. Has anyone else previously uh, pointed this out, Uh, Scott, or or, are you the first one to actually connect these dots? Well, to the best of my knowledge, um, those two examples are things that I've found and, and I've never seen anywhere else. But uh, in my research, I um, come across things quite often, and I'm, I'm careful to give credit to people. Sure, sure. When, when I just, you know, am repeating what they've discovered. You mentioned the, uh, the, uh, the distance in nautical miles between uh, Cleopatra's Needle and um, this peak in France was, was it 3,333? Is, is that the connection? Um, I mean, we're talking about, you know, arcane knowledge and so forth, and uh, we often attribute that to the, uh, you know, the Freemasons. We have, of course, the 33rd degree uh, Mason, which is sort of at the peak of that, uh, that pyramid, pyramidal organization. That's right. Is is there a connection there then, I'm guessing, between the 33rd degree Mason and those repeating threes? Well, the, just the number 33, of course, is the repeating threes, and so it, it, it fits into that system very nicely. And I, in fact, I find the Freemasons are often kind of connected to these, these um, alignments and distances, um, sometimes in uncanny ways. For example, um, I can think of a building in the International Peace Garden on the U.S.-Canada border that is shaped like the Freemasonic um, square and compass emblem. Right. And it actually is only visible from the air, looking down on it, because the actual building has that floor plan. And that building is located at 100 degrees, 3 minutes, and 33.33 seconds west longitude. So it has all these threes in it. Someone was very precise but in then laying that. I found um, there's an alignment, a really long-distance alignment that connects four sites. So they're all on the same great circle. 
and the, that Freemason building in um, the International Peace Garden is um, on on that line. The western terminus of the line is the um, the Ziggurat building in Southern California at 33 degrees, 33 minutes, and 33 seconds north. Right. And so if you go from there, and then you, you stop at the International Peace Garden, and then you continue on all the way to France, it goes through this place called Sergi Pontoise, which is a really esoteric suburb of Paris, right. full of symbolism. And then the line terminates at the Round Fountain in the Tuileries Gardens. And where so. is the Tuileries Gardens? It's in central Paris. It's That's right in, in front Paris. of the Louvre. Why? All roads lead to Paris, apparently, or or certain parts of France. Does this have anything to do with I don't know the the uh, the Knights Templar or, or why why France? Well, France is a really um, Paris in particular is a very important city in in um, in history and in in esoteric circles. Um, in fact, uh, Graham Hancock and Robert Bavall wrote a book called Talisman. And they uh, they brought out the history of the word Paris and show that it's connected to the Faria Isis, which is the lighthouse of Alexandria. That's how it was called. And they think that Paris is actually a corruption of, of the name of the lighthouse of Alexandria. Oh, interesting. Robert Bouval is going to be on the program at the end of the month, so we'll, we can talk about that with him as well. But uh, um, And I, I'm sorry, I interrupted. you. We were I, I was asking you about this obelisk uh, in uh, Central Park, and uh, I believe it's there's some line connecting that with... It's around the Jackie Onassis uh, Reservoir there in Central Park as well. Yeah, if you look in, um, in Google Earth or some, in any satellite imagery of Central Park, you'll see that it has that reservoir, and there's an underwater structure that's in a straight line that kind of crosses uh, the whole reservoir, and it points right at the Met, in particular, it points um, right at this particular room, which contains the Temple of Dendur, which is an ancient Egyptian temple that was relocated there um, in, in the 60s when they built the Aswan Dam. They flooded the valley and they had to, to relocate it, so they put, they put it there. The tomb is at the Met, at Lincoln Center in New York City. It's at the Metropolitan Museum oh, of Oh, the Metropolitan Museum, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. And... Um, it's funny, but um, Jackie lived right, grew up right next to that, and um, they, the reservoir is called the Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis Reservoir, and the line, you know, points to the Temple of Dendur, which she ceremonially received for the United States from the country of Egypt. Wow. I mean, these things, they can't be planned this way, or can they? No, I think... Um, this is conspiracy from a higher level. You know, the, the, a lot of the examples that I'm telling you about, right, right. like, let's just go rewind a bit to Cleopatra's Needles, and, you know, th- take the one in London, for example, that, right, right. you know, how could that be? I mean, it, I, could, I could see that there could be a conspiracy to locate a uh, monument within a city, but how is it that London just happens to be in the right location to make that happen? Exactly. Right. So bizarre. And it, it reminds me of another one like that. Um, Let, let's get, get, get you to hold on to that, Scott. Okay. We're uh, coming up on a break. When we come back, uh, we'll continue to delve into uh, sacred geometry and, uh, and numbers and music and art and architecture. This is fascinating. I'm enjoying this immensely. Scott Onstott with us, the creator of the epic documentary film called Secrets in Plain Sights. 
Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Scott Onstott stays with us, architect, engineer, artist, trainer. Uh, and we're talking about sacred geometry. And uh, you, you were talking, uh, and I was asking, you know, when, when you talk about the distances between, let's say, an obelisk in, in uh, Central Park and its, its twin in London and, and um, you know, the coincidence surrounding these numbers, how it can't be a coincidence, and you describe it as a conspiracy from above. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I don't have an explanation for it because I don't know the answer, but I, I find all of these clues, and I leave it up to you to, to fill in your own metaphysics or spirituality as you see fit. But I, I can present the patterns to you. But I think you, you probably agree that it, it, it's hard to imagine that it would be just a human conspiracy behind it all. Um, you know, there, there are some things that are just too hard to imagine wrapping your mind around that. Right. Like, for example, uh, we were talking before about um, Cleopatra's needle um, in London and, and comparing it with where it used to be in Alexandria. And that was 3333.33 uh, 3333 kilometers. Well, another one is um, the Ishtar Gates. There's an Ishtar, there was an, originally an Ishtar Gate in Babylon, and it was moved to Berlin in the early 20th century. And later, Saddam Hussein built a replica in the original location in Babylon. And the distance between them is 3,333 kilometers. Wow. Now, <laughs> I mean, that's just too much to believe that, that there's a conspiracy because Berlin was obviously there for a very long time. Right, right. And they couldn't just happen to put it there because it, um, I mean, what are the chances of a capital city, city being in the right location? It, it seems pretty slim to me. Well, uh, I, I was discussing again uh, John Lennon earlier with a guest and talking about all the nines uh, surrounding Lennon. I don't know if you know anything about uh, John Lennon and, um, you know, born on October the 9th, uh, you know, the um, so many of their um, albums released on, you know, September 9th, their back catalog, September 9th, 2009, uh, Revolution number nine, dream number nine, number nine, all his songs with a number nine in it. And uh, when you add it up, you know, okay, so maybe four or five of them are coincidences. But when you start to see it's, you know, it's dozens and dozens and dozens, uh, can't be a coincidence. So this is an example of, I guess, the, uh, um, I don't know, it's just, it's the, this matrix of numbers, which is the backbone of, of the universe just being revealed to us, I suppose. Yeah. And have you heard of the Enneagram of personality? It's a, a system used to, you know, analyze a personality based on nine numbers. Ah, no, I'm not familiar with that. And John Lennon probably was a nine. Must have been. <laughs> Must have been. The Peacemaker, it's called. Ah, okay, interesting. Now, speaking of numbers, uh, not to jump around here too much, but now what we're, while we're on the, the, the subject of numbers, why is it numbers seem to follow uh, us around? How many, uh, for me, for example, I used to work uh, at a radio station up the road, uh, uh, 1010 on the AM frequency, uh, 1010. Now, my, um, so my wife and I both met while working at 1010, and both our children uh, were born October, which is the 10th month. Uh, they were born on the 10th day. They're twins. They were born, well, one of them was born at 10 after 10. And how, I can't tell you how many times I look at a clock and I see 1010 flashing. Well, I think one is figures very highly in your in your 
astrology or your makeup or however you like to talk about it. For me, it, it happens to be three. I was I was born in Laguna Beach, California, which is at 33 degrees, 30 minutes north. <laughs> I actually learned to drive in um, the parking lot of that ziggurat building, which is at 33 degrees, 33 minutes, 33 seconds. The address of my high school is 33333 Golden Lantern. Oh, my. And uh, it just goes on and on. You know, it's bizarre. Well, that answers my next question, which is why you got started in this. I mean, it was it was the universe is screaming at you. Look into this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I didn't become aware of it until I was thirty three. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course, of course not. not. <laughs> so, it, when we talk about thirty three, and we talk, we mentioned the, the Masons, the thirty third degree Masons, uh, is this? I mean, I don't know if you can answer this, but we talk about this arcane knowledge that they have. Is this at the root of, 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 of their arcane knowledge when we talk about the stonemasons and how to, how to put buildings together and, and, and using the sacred geometry and so forth? Is that the secret knowledge that we believe they have? I think they're definitely custodians of, a, of an ancient mystery tradition along with many other societies. Um, they don't really have a, a monopoly on that information, but they've done a good job of, of preserving it. And I, I don't think that most Freemasons probably don't understand it, but um, that, it, that doesn't matter. It, it, you know, you can transmit uh, information through ritual and not understand what it means. And so um, it, it's sort of encoded in there. Well, talking about encoding this uh, sacred geometry, not just in architecture, but you mentioned art. Can you give us some examples of, of, of where, uh, again, secrets uh, hidden in plain sight, where this sacred geometry is encoded or embedded in popular, you know, famous works of art? Um, nothing's popping out in my mind right now, except for this, maybe this Renaissance painting of an octag- octagonal building um, that sort of represents the sun and, and the people in the square were like the planets. Um, I think that uh, when you train yourself to see a lot of symbolism, it just sort of pops out um, after a while. Right. Right. You start to notice things that you wouldn't have given a second glance before. Um, I don't. I can't think of anything off the top of my head because my, you know, my my, my background is in architecture, so I'm I'm right. much more focused on buildings and cities. I'm gu- I'm guessing though that Leonardo da Vinci would have been all over this uh, sacred geometry. Oh yeah, and uh, Michelangelo as well. Um, you know, he encoded the 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 human brain um, physiology in, in some of his paintings and. Um, yeah, they they were in on it in a way. They they knew they knew a lot of these esoteric symbols and and information. Tried to, and it, but it, they lived in a different time, you know, where it was dangerous for them to talk about it. Interesting. We'll find out why when we come back. Scott Onstott stays with us as we discuss sacred geometry right here on the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Scott Onstott stays with us, creator of the documentary film Secrets in Plain Sight, uh, which incidentally, I mean, it's wildly popular, and, and people can watch it uh, for free, but you made that movie for, like, next to nothing, for like a dollar or something. How did that happen? Yeah, it was only my time, and it took me a whole year. I took a year off of work and, and worked on that uh, very passionately. It took me, uh, I think I worked harder on that than I've ever worked on any project, um, but um it was a real labor of love, and uh, you know I'm, I'm real proud of, of having made that. 
And and what what is the, what do you want people to take away if when they watch Secrets in Plain Sight? I mean, obviously, the, you know, there's, there's beauty, uh, there's you know beauty in all of this, in 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 the uh, you know, the synchronicities and the uh, and the symmetry and the you know in nature echoed in in our buildings and so forth. But what what's the takeaway? The takeaway is to look at the universe in a totally different way and and to and to ask better questions, start asking more questions and kind of reevaluate your worldview and it gives you a lot of opportunities to ponder things in different ways and to, to ask better questions hopefully uh, the number 108 108 figures uh, large in all of this um, uh, explain the significance of 108 108 is is one of a whole canon of number um, that are all doubles of each other so um, 108, um, directly we can think of the, the radius of the moon is 1,080 miles. The um, atomic weight of silver is 108 grams per mole. Um, there's 108 stitches on a baseball, which is like... That throwing, I can relate to. the moon. <laughs> that I can relate <laughs> you know? to. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. A baseball is like a giant um, square encompasses um, emblem in the field. You're saying Abner Doubleday was a mason? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, speaking of uh, of 108 or 1008, often when we see a uh, a, a watch, the old uh, style watch, not the digital watch, uh, but the way when they're being modeled, or if you see them on a TV commercial, you've got the uh, the hour hand. Um, usually, the hour hand will be pointed at the ten, and then the minute hand. Almost as if it's framing because, you know, the Timex or whatever the name is up at the top there underneath the, 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 where the 12 would be. So you've got the hour hand and the minute hand sort of framing that in kind of a V-shape, and it's at like 10.08. If you just uh, Google, um, you know, watches and look at images, you'll see almost every watch is tuned to that time. In fact, even digital watches are, are set at 10.08. Oh, is that right? That I hadn't noticed. Yeah, it's really quite interesting. Sometimes they'll be set at 10.09. But uh, what I found in my Volume 2 film, I show how that's connected with the geometry of the Great Pyramid and squaring the circle. And how is it connected? Oh, well, those hands are perpendicular to the faces of the Great Pyramid, um, you know, given the the 51 degree, 51 second, or 51 degrees, 51 minute slope angle. It just arises from the geometry of the Great Pyramid that that would be the proper time to um, correlate with it. Now, I, it's hard to describe. If I showed you a picture, you'd get it right away. Right, right. As an architect and engineer, if 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 one doesn't incorporate uh, these numbers, these ratios, into structures, bridges, and buildings, do we do so at our own peril? Is there any... Is there any downside to it? I mean, is, or is it even possible uh, to construct uh, edifices and, and, and so forth without incorporating these, these, these numbers and ratios? Now, I think probably most buildings aren't using these, these numbers and ratios. Um, although, if you look hard enough, you might, you might find certain things. But um, I think when you encode these numbers in your building, it, it makes it work at a, at a different level or, or a, uh, a deeper level or a more, more subtle level. And I don't know what, what practical benefit you really get. Pr- uh, probably nothing. But it, it certainly connects it with the, the larger picture. And um, 
I think once you become aware of the way that the universe kind of works with geometry and number, it would be really hard not to use that. I'm, I'm so tempted to encode that information in things. Right. You know, once you're, once you're aware of that, it's only natural for you to want to encode it. Do buildings that incorporate these, this geometry, are they more beautiful in your mind? They are from an aesthetic point of view, like when you appreciate mathematics, it's sort of like that. They're, they're, more, they're more beautiful because of that harmony. But I would say, by and large, most people aren't aware of that harmony at all, and so it's lost on them. And what, that's what kind of surprises me about a lot of the buildings that have these encodings is that nobody seems to publicize that fact. If I designed a, a building and, and I encoded 432 in it in, in so many different ways, which is related to 108 because it's 4 times 108, if I did that, I think I would write a book about it, make a coffee table book and show how cool that was. Sure, But sure. It, it's never done. And, and so it makes me wonder if, if the conspiracy isn't, at a higher level, and the the architects aren't even aware of it, but but they might be influenced to subtly choose certain things without their awareness. Now that could be the case, or they could be involved in a in a literal conspiracy where where there's a group of people that is planning this. But but I still don't know what benefit they would be getting from that. You know, um, right, right. So what if your building has certain numbers encoded? I mean, really. Um, well, uh, numbers as they let, let's uh, let's touch on music, for example. Numbers as they relate to you know frequencies, uh, uh, you know musical notes or, or frequencies can have the power to create or destroy. Uh, could there be something there? There could be. There there could be some subtle art or science that certain people are aware of that the general public is sort of totally unaware of, and they may be reaping some type of esoteric benefit or actually literal benefit. Maybe it makes you feel better in the space, or maybe it allows power to come flowing to you. I don't know. Well, speaking of music, um, I mean, are these ratios at work in, in music? For example, was Beethoven, I don't know if he was a Mason, wouldn't surprise me, uh, was he sort of cognizant of these ratios, and was he somehow incorporating these into his musical scores? Well, I'm not an expert in music, but I do know about the 432 hertz tuning, and I know that um, that's supposedly more harmonious to the ear and to the voice. And there's been a movement of opera singers to try to shift the concert tuning from 440 hertz to 432 hertz. And uh, 432 is 4 times 108, so it's part of what I call the cosmic sequence. And it ties in with so many interesting things in the universe at all different scales. Well, one of the, the uh, we just recently lost, I believe, is uh, this Japanese researcher, Imoto, uh, talking about, uh, you know, the crystalline structure of water. And I've seen, I've seen uh, microscope images of, uh, the, of water crystals under the influence of, let's say, for example, heavy metal music as opposed to, you know, classical music. And it's, it's quite startling. Well, I think we all kind of know that, but it's nice to see actual evidence of that, you know, in some, in some more science, kind of science, scientific way of, of taking photographs of the water. It's really cool. I agree. And uh, while we're talking about the crystalline water structure, I mean, our DNA is, is filled with, you know, water crystals and so forth. Does this, does this um, sacred geometry apply to 
like the double, a double helix strand of DNA. Well, everything is geometry. I mean, Plato said all is geometry, and I really believe that. So, yes, DNA is um, very geometric. If you look at it wound up from looking down the, the, the center axis, DNA is arranged in um, uh, a circle divided into ten parts. And I think in three dimensions, it's like nested dodecahedrons. So it's, it's, it's all geometric. And so geometry and, and musical harmony really affects our physiology in ways that I don't think science has quite caught up to yet. So much to discuss, and, and we're running out of time here, but I did, I, I did want to touch on, uh, again, mentioning the Freemasons and, and their sort of preoccupation with uh, the Temple of Solomon and uh, sort of their stated purpose uh, to, you know, to reconstruct Solomon's temple wherever they can. Uh, yeah. Now, talk to me about their efforts, because I understand, for example, the, the provincial legislature in, in, um, in Alberta uh, is sort of designed to be a replica of Solomon's temple. Uh, no, I don't think it's in Alberta. I no? think you're referring to uh, Winnipeg. Oh, Winnipeg. Um, oh, right, right. It's yes. in Man- Manitoba. Manitoba. Okay. And, um, yeah, this guy Frank Albo has done great research on, on the uh, Freemasonic connections with that particular structure, how it's at the center of North America, and it has all this Egyptian symbolism and so on. But let me, let me give you an American example also. Um, in um, Grant Park, Chicago, there's a, um, a famous park there uh, right on the water that has in the center the Buckingham Fountain. And it's um, 6,666.6 kilometers from the Round Fountain in the Tuileries Garden of Paris. Yeah, and it has Paris the same again. layout as that garden. And that happens to be the sacred geometry of Jerusalem. And it turns out that the round fountain represents the Holy of Holies in Solomon's Temple. And this park in Chicago is the terminus of Route 66, (laughs) historic Route 66 in the east. And that highway goes all the way to Santa Monica, California. And the end of the trail of Route 66 is 6,600 nautical miles to the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. So it's also connected on levels that are so mind-blowing that that happened across lots of time that it makes me think of conspiracy from a higher level or a deeper level of reality. It's unbelievable. Um, uh, One Canada Square right here in Toronto where I'm uh, sitting. Um, I believe there's a, a Google Earth image of One Canada Square. Um, what's the um, the significance there? What's going on there? Um, I didn't know there's a place in Toronto called One Canada Square. I need to look into that. But the photo I have is of One Canada Square in the city of London, England. Oh, oh okay. And um, that building was originally designed to be 864 feet high. And it actually was built slightly less because it was in the airport flight path. That's another story. Ah, and it turns out that building is 8,641 8, kilometers from the Transamerica Pyramid in San Francisco, which is also 864 feet high if you count its pyramidion. So it's part of this canon of 864, which is 8 times 108. Amazing. Amazing. Wow. I could, uh, I could sit and listen to this all night, Scott. Fascinating. Uh, very quickly, how can people watch uh, your wonderful documentary, my videos and books are all available at secretsinplainsight.com. 
secretsinplainsight.com. Scott, I really enjoyed this. Thanks for spending some time with me. Thanks a lot. Scott Onstott. All right, my thanks to Albert Venzel, Tim Spreen, my technical producer, all of you listening at home, back next week with a brand new show. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.